Today's reading is Imperfection by Elizabeth Carlson. I am falling in love with my imperfections. The way I never get the sink really clean. Forget to check my oil, lose my car in parking lots, miss appointments I have written down. I'm just a little late. I am learning to love the small bumps on my face, the big bump of my nose, my hairless scalp, chipped nail polish, toes that overlap. Learning to love the open-ended mystery of not knowing why. I am learning to fail to make lists, use my time wisely, read the books I should. Instead, I practice inconsistency, irrationality, forgetfulness. Probably I should hang my clothes neatly in the closet, all the shirts together, then the pants. Send Christmas cards, or better yet, a letter telling of my perfect family. But I'd rather waste time listening to the rain or lying underneath my cat learning to purr. I used to fill every moment with something I could cross off later. Perfect was the laundry done and folded, all my papers graded, the whole truth and nothing. But now the empty mind is what I seek, the formless shape, the strange off-center, sometimes fictional me. Good morning, imperfect church. <laughs> so there's a moment I've been really thinking about lately, and um, it has everything to do with my ordination, uh, the anniversary of which is tomorrow. Uh, so, wow. <laughs> uh, November 15th, every year, another anniversary of this time. It's uh, an anniversary, a milestone that this church made possible. Uh, remember, you all ordained me. That's, that's how it works in our tradition. The congregations have the sole power and authority to ordain, and what a wonderful thing it is. I've been thinking about it because I recently got to participate in a, a colleague's ordination, um, which was a delight I didn't realize I missed so much. Uh, driving up to Indianapolis and the long trek up there, um, and seeing colleagues for such a wonderful ritual. It was another sign of a new normal emerging. Masked ordinations with a very reduced amount of people in person, and yet people from all over the country and world attending online. What a thing it is. It was good to be there, drive up there, to go through what I feel is a very ancient ritual. And it's not that I feel, it's that it is an ancient ritual uh, that we hold dear not just as ministers, but as a tradition. The rituals we have in ordination go back probably 1,800 years or more, 1,900 years. And ordination rituals belong to that great body and history that is so much bigger than any minister or congregation. Uh, they're deeply meaningful, and they're not just meaningful to someone like me. Now, the moment I've been thinking about is a specific moment in the ordination called the right hand of fellowship. Sometimes it's a very brief moment in an ordination, uh, you blink and you'll miss it happening. But I am convinced it is the most important element of an ordination, outside, of course, the actual act of ordaining. The right hand of fellowship comes to us from 
the Apostle Paul. Now, don't worry. Um, I hope you trust that I will bring you the Apostle Paul in a respectful and <laughs> not the bad Paul, right? The, which is the fake Paul, I'll, I'll add. Um, but it comes from the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians. Now, I love that letter in the Christian scriptures. It is Paul at his absolute crustiest and crunchiest. Like he is, he is in a terrible mood when he wrote this letter. He is not thankful for the church in Galatia. He's mad at them beyond belief. And uh, he says as much uh, in there with some very scathing words. It is a helpful reminder that communities of faith, no matter who they are, mess up. And sometimes our leaders, ordained or not, get burnt out. The Apostle Paul was burnt out in this letter. And it's clear in the second chapter of Galatians. Now, if there's a good old Baptist church, I'd have you open up right now and we'd look at it ourselves, but it's in the second chapter of Galatians. You can look at it later. It's obvious there is a tension between Paul and Peter and several other folks divided into opposing camps. But then something interesting happens. Grace shows up, and Peter welcomes Paul into the work of building up a new faith community with a simple, very simple clasping of hands. That's all the right hand of fellowship is, is usually two colleagues clasping hands in the ordination service. And it goes back to the letter of Galatians, to the Galatians. It's a clasping of hands that commissioned the deacons and, yes, the deaconesses. We need to remember that women did a lot of the heavy lifting in building early Christian communities. It was a clasping of hands that freed Onesimus, the slave, later on in the New Testament. It was a clasping of hands that recognized the good work of countless people from that moment up until now, this day. It is a beautiful moment that I believe, in the saga of early Christianity. One that, <laughs> I did write an undergraduate thesis on this, but you don't need to read it. It's very long and it's not very good. Uh, but <laughs> um, the professor liked it. That's all that matters. But because of that, you know, early church was my focus in undergraduate. I have a minor soapbox moment that I have to, I can't resist. Because of that, it's why I bristle when people demonize Paul. They want to throw him out, cut him out entirely from the Christian scriptures. We need to take everything in context. And in Paul's case, we need to include the Greek and not the opinions of those who seek power over the vulnerable and the marginalized. That is where the problem is. People taking Paul out of context to oppress the vulnerable and the marginalized. But even that small, very small soapbox moment is relevant to the story for this morning. Because once Peter gave Paul that right hand of fellowship, he told Paul, and this is great, remember the poor. It's an interesting thing to lift up. One that has deep roots in the early Christian story, but also a very practical justice element to it for today. But immediately after this, we find Paul eventually returning to Jerusalem again after some time away and confronting Peter. Heads are budding, heated arguments ensue, they're right back to where they were before that elegant moment of clasping hands. Now, I love this. It's a story of water and oil with a moment of hope that somehow they would mix and right back to the division. This 
right back to the conflicting personalities, the disagreements, right? It's human and imperfect and exactly how life is. It's a simple glimpse into how religion can be wonderfully imperfect, which is why it's my favorite ritual, the right hand of fellowship in our ordinations. Ministers, surprise, are not perfect. Congregation members and friends, surprise, are not perfect. None of us are supposed to be. Now this will come as no surprise now, but I've been thinking a lot about imperfection. Not, oh, I wish, let's see, my hands weren't so dry in winter and I had to use so much hand lotion, or why is my skin peeling in fall and why is, it, why is this tooth hurting and the dentist says it's perfectly fine, or when did the gray hair start coming in on this part of my head? Or when will I ever learn to stop slamming on the brakes at a stop sign or a red light and on and on and on? We could really spend all day listing off our imperfections, couldn't we? No. It could be those little things, right? But I'm thinking about a theology of imperfection. Or really, uh, the lack of a theology of imperfection. Do you have a theology of imperfection? A spiritual understanding of what it is? If you prefer the word philosophy, that's perfectly fine. I'm a minister, so I'll use the word theology. But go ahead. Have you ever considered imperfection broadly defined as a spiritual topic? Now, I'd wager we've all been to, exposed to it without ever naming it. And part of my pondering here comes out of ruminating on just how much the Puritans still influence our culture. And this is just a reminder, so we don't forget <laughs> Unitarians are one of two groups that have a direct lineage to the Puritans. And if you didn't know that, another surprise for today, right? And then some of you are like, yes, we know, you've told us this a million times, but there is a reason I tell you this. It's not so that we feel bad about our history, but so that we understand ourselves as a people. Whether you like it or not, whether it's a religious group or your own personal families, family characteristics are passed down through the ages. Unitarian Universalists, in my estimation, still have a lot in common with our paranoid, witch-burning, piety-obsessed ancestors, the Puritans. It kind of knocks us down a significant notch hearing that. It's a humility-inducing historical truth. But I also look to both religious culture and national culture, and I see Puritan fingerprints everywhere, especially in how we handle imperfection. Now, Here's an admission, I'm a recovering perfectionist. I kind of enjoy saying that. This is the second time I've said it this morning and I like it more each time. It's still very much a part of who I am and how I was trained. I know I'm not unique here, right? So many of us have a variety of perfectionist maxims etched into our minds. Onwards and upward, forever and ever. You hear that one a lot in UU circles. If at first you don't succeed, try, 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 try again. And that's an interesting one because the intent there is to be perfectly harmless, yet it often is not. I could list more. Think of those corporate motivational slogans with cute kittens or sunsets that tell you how you should feel about teamwork, optimism, productivity, and so on. Many of you know what I mean, right? Your desk is piled high with papers and it continues to get piled high with papers. And yet there's a little kitten dangling from a tree branch on a poster. Your coffee mug says, keep calm and carry on no matter what. 
And a book titled, However Many Habits for Successful Such and Such and Such, was handed out at the last in-service day or corporate workshop. And it's not just corporate America that has these traits. Look around. It's rampant. It's everywhere. And it's not always on posters or coffee mugs. Religious institutions in America often have the same messaging. And I need to add, you know, it's not inherently evil, though the practice of it can be. I think it's perfectly human for us to have some level and desire for perfection, right? But when altar guilds in a variety of Protestant traditions <laughs> have heated debates and arguments over how the communion linens should be folded, this way in quarters or that way or folded down or folded up or folded this way, you have to wonder what kind of deity would ever care about linens. When people notice that the new rabbi in a synagogue uh, uh, on Rosh Hashanah uh, sounded the shofar only 98 times instead of the prescribed 100 times, you have to wonder where the theme of sweetness, honey dip, ap apples dipped in honey, went to. When a Muslim doesn't perform ablutions on their nostrils as is prescribed, and people call them out for that, you have to wonder... <laughs> What kind of discussion is that to consider how nostrils are suddenly a universe-shattering subject? And when Unitarian Universalists point fingers over not living the eight principles, one could instead easily hear the words from the crucible, There's Goody Proctor! I saw her speaking to the devil! Now we could go on a tear, right? Couldn't we? About how perfectionism thrives in communities such as ours. But then we'd all feel terrible about it. And I find it a funny thing that it's an interesting part of human psychology that when human beings feel bad about something, we often double down on that very thing. So let's not do that to ourselves today. Though our journey into imperfection does require us to name the ways in which we are not being served well by any notions of perfectionism. So that's an important thing to remember, right? Don't do the list, but just look at how it's not serving us well. And I've noticed something over the last decade, I think. It's probably longer than that. Critique these days often immediately leads to, well, this is a hill we're going to die on, right? It's not just a critique anymore, a suggestion, but something someone must passionately and fiercely fight for. That sounds exhausting. And I know I'm done with seeing every hill in life as something to die on. I'd rather enjoy the view once in a while. Instead of getting into all of the little things about Unitarian Universalism that I or we don't like or I or we feel feed into perfectionism, I'd rather just name the big kahuna exceptionalism. The ways in which we, and that includes me, talk about this faith you'd think we were the bee's knees and the cat's meow. It doesn't mean we can't be exceptional. It doesn't mean that we cannot be special, joyful, fun, a community that welcomes and affirms, a community that pushes itself to grow and change, a place that admits most conflicts are not terrible things to run away from, but places of curiosity, that we have more than we imagined and scarcity is never healthy, that we don't need to wait to be told what to do, that we have everything we need to bring this place alive, that laughter is just as important as our tears. But exceptionalism negates all of those things. 
Why change when we are so great to begin with? Why challenge ourselves and take risks as a community when we're doing just fine up here on our hill? Conflict? What conflict? There's no conflict here ever. And this one might surprise you, but I think it has everything to do with exceptionalism. Religions can often become a frightful slog when they are steeped in exceptionalism. You know what I mean, right? Ever go to a UU or other church workshop and it sounds somewhat like this. We are so joyful to have you here in this radical, transformational, healing space of joy. If that is joy, get me out of here. I honestly believe in this time of great religious transition, exceptionalism is not just a UU problem. It's a religious problem and a cultural problem, right? And how it goes hand in hand with perfectionism, to to me at least, is pretty obvious. I don't have a magical balm. (laughs) I wish I did, but I don't have a magical balm that'll heal us of perfectionism. And like I said, I'm recovering from it too. And let me tell you, I haven't enjoyed being a minister so much as the times when I've let go of my perfectionist tendencies. Now, instead of a balm that heals all, we do have a story. A story that connects us with communities in our heritage from thousands of years ago. And so we return again to the Apostle Paul. I said at the earlier service, the Apostle Paul has never been invoked so many times in this space, and well, now we're just off the charts with this. (laughs) After Paul received that right hand of fellowship, the tensions and conflicts between him and Peter roared back into existence. And in looking at those those writings, they likely never healed from their divisions. They disagreed greatly on many things and probably didn't like each other very much for the rest of their lives. Yet what that simple story tells us is that those disagreements were not lines in the sand. They weren't hills to die on. That though each person in that story felt they knew the right way of growing this new religious community community that was yet to have a name, grace showed up and took the wheel. Now grace, what is that? It's this ethereal concept where generosity, forgiveness, insight, joy, and passion, all these things come together inexplicably. It's what Carl Jung the great psychoanalyst would categorize as a type of synchronicity, grace, a word and idea that can dissolve any exceptionalism or perfectionism. It was that intangible grace that led to Paul and Peter realizing their differences would not disappear, but they could still affirm one another, even while disagreeing. Now imagine that, right? Affirm one another, even while still disagreeing. If only our Congress could do that. And so here I am, a day away from the anniversary of my ordination, and I have to be honest, I'm suddenly not feeling like the new minister anymore. I feel like I've crossed a threshold. (laughs) And I've made mistakes aplenty. Flubs, disagreements, glorious and quiet disasters, limping along and sprinting ahead, great synchronicity, abundant grace wrapped in the joyful embrace of imperfection. Now, over six years here, my most hopeful desire, right? Sometimes it takes six years to name it. My most hopeful desire for this church is to be a community of grace, a place that honors our imperfect humanity, and because of that, a place that keeps taking risks, 
Not reckless choices, but choice, but risks that value experimentation over results. I say it often, but religion should be a laboratory of discovery. And really, boy, you could really, you could really go all in with that metaphor, right? I got my lab coat on, which is this stole, and our values are our equipment, right? It'll be our Bunsen burners, our beakers, the many test tubes of colorful liquid, the flames and the careful measurements, right? That's the risk I hope for, a risk that continually frees itself from the demands of perfectionism, a risk that is okay with failure, a risk that realizes we will always have disagreements, but we can still honor the good and right in our fellow religious lab rats. From that intense disagreement between Peter and Paul, Mary didn't show up, and that moment of grace between them, today, Christianity is still a vital religion, imperfect, both mundanely and catastrophically, absolutely. With diversity, beauty, glorious art and music, uniqueness, and a story that endured, yeah. As things increasingly improve in this pandemic world, I hope our emergence as a religious community leaves us with some decisive ethics. And really, it's always a couple questions with me, right? What are the things that were worth holding on to in this community over the past 21 months? Can you name any? And what are the things we never missed and probably weren't that important to begin with? Can you name a few there? That last batch are the ones usually where there's the biggest heated disagreements and the hills people want to die on, right? <laughs> and now we don't miss them. But even more importantly, what risks has the Unitarian Universalist Church of Lexington taken today, or yesterday, or plans to take? What risks have you taken, oh, Seven Acres crew, musician, stewardship, pastoral associate, nominating community, refugee resettlement, religious exploration, bored and not forgotten, but far too many to keep listing. I'm forgetting so many, and yet you're included in this. Volunteers and members, what are the risks? we are taking. And I ask myself of this often. Sometimes I don't have an answer, sometimes I do. And just like many of you, sometimes my perfectionism holds me back. A community that continues to work through perfectionism and embraces imperfection takes risks. Risks of grace and surprise, joy and passion. Now remember how the story of Paul ended. Peter tells him to remember the poor. The two of them surely knew in that moment they would still disagree, that they would probably never get along or like one another, right? But they knew they could still work together. Remembering the poor was a call to remember the common ground, to remember the common mission and vision, to remember that great other that held them together despite their commonalities and their deep divisions. That's the way through. Remember what unites us is far greater. And what a great thing to remember, right? When everywhere we look, today especially, we're told that division is irreparable. There it is. Remember it. Practice it. And so in that tradition from thousands of years ago, I extend my virtual hand in fellowship as it was extended to me. We are all invited to be religious risk takers, imperfect as we may be.
Maybe so. Amen.